0: The following is a message of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. Marcy and I are grateful for the opportunity to be with you this morning. For 50 years, i worked in ministry, pastor churches. The last 28 of those years, as Ellis mentioned, were just up the road from you at First Baptist Lewisville, Texas. We've been retired about a year. We visited 25 churches last year. We came here three times. You were the most visited church by us this past year. We found this to be a warm, friendly place. That's a reflection on you. And thank you for the work that your church does, continues to do, and will continue to do in the life of our convention of Texas Baptists, in what God calls us to do. Just so you know a little bit, let me just make sure the record is straight. Marcy and I have five children. We have four daughters and a son. They're all married. We have 18 grandchildren. They all live next to us. Well, when I say next, like not next door, but... One daughter lives about six blocks from us, she and her family. Another one about almost three-quarters of a mile. One lives across in a neighborhood that's about a mile away. We have uh, another daughter who moved to Frisco a few years ago. I said, Lindsay, no problem. We'll see you Christmas and Easter. (coughs) Not really. And we have a son and his wife. Grayson is our youngest. He He has four big sisters. So growing up. He understood what it meant to be kind and courteous to anyone and everyone, especially those ladies, girls. We do have those 18 grandchildren. They range from 15. Brighton, our oldest grandchild, just got her learner's permit to drive, so just watch out. And our youngest is a boy named Baker, Baker Stephen. He's named after me. Marcy doesn't have any one of our children named after her, but, but I have two, three. I have three of them named after me. So, and where was I going with that? I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> our youngest grandson, Baker Stephen Hatfield, was born just a couple of months ago. So, that's how busy our family has been. Also... You know my last name, it's Hatfield, which means I can't go anywhere and give a credit card or do anything, and someone will ask me, Well, sir, are you one of those? And my pat answer I've worked on for years, and it's to me just, I will smile and simply say, Yes, and we won. <laughs> we that usually stops the conversation completely. All kidding aside, reading the Bible together is an amazing thing any church should do, any church can do. And the passage of the moment today is hopefully one that you're already a little bit familiar with. It's the story found in Luke chapter 9. It is found as a pretty lengthy passage, but we're going to move through it rather quickly. It was a passage that changed lives then, and it can change lives now. I want to simply read it as we begin this morning. It comes from the New American Standard Bible. It may not be your translation of choice, but it reads pretty close to most of the translations. But it says this, "'Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming.'" And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him." And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was not realizing really what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to come and look at my son, for he is my only boy, and a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly screams and throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I beg your disciples to cast it out. They could not. And Jesus answered and said to them, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. The reading of God's word is an act of worship within itself, and all God's people said. But to take his word and to learn from his word is an entirely different thing. There was an Italian painter who lived centuries ago. I can't pronounce his whole name, nor could you, so don't give me that, that I should do better. But he's just known to most of us as Raphael. Raphael lived Born in 1483, died in 1520, so he died a young man. But he was a contemporary of a couple of people that we're basically familiar with, Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo. These three were amazing inventors. Raphael was an amazing painter. He is known for his paintings of the Madonna of Mary. Most of all, most of all he's known for his painting of just of people their're facial figures they're they 're they're bigger than life almost, but his most famous painting in the minds of some is called the transfiguration it 's the passage that we just read the transfiguration that 's a strange word, even though it 's a biblical word in a sense, but to be transfigured means more than just being transformed it 's Akin to a Greek word, metamorphos, if you've heard that before. When you're transfigured, you change, but it's always to show the glory of God. And so when you hear that idea that Jesus was transfigured, yes, he appeared to the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, along with Moses and Elijah. He appeared in a transformed state. No, more than that, a transfigured state, which means that the glory of God himself was revealed. Those three disciples that were with him saw Jesus day in and day out, but they saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration like they had never seen him before. But I wanted to give you a peek at the, at the painting itself. Tell me thank you. That wasn't sincere. Tell me thank you. You're welcome. This is, of course, a copy, a print of the Transfiguration. You look at it closely and you'll see that, and keep in mind, folks, Raphael is going to take some liberties with Scripture here. That's what they all do. As a matter of fact, we interpret Scripture, and there's nothing wrong with that, but we want to be careful with it and know that Raphael, when he made this painting, did so inserting some things that we may not be too familiar with. This idea of the transfiguration is found in the first three Gospels of the New Testament. It's found in Matthew chapter 17 in Mark chapter 9. And the passage we read this week as a congregation was the version or the telling of it in Luke chapter 9. But look carefully at it right now. And you'll see that Raphael has divided the painting into an upper portion, a top half, if you will, that I call the mountaintop. And the bottom half, if you will, which is simply what was going on at the same time or maybe a few hours different than what the top half was saying. I want us to come back and look at the top half for just a minute, and you'll see it's very obvious. You see Jesus, he's right there in the center. In Raphael's mind, transfiguring Jesus meant that he was not susceptible to gravity, and there he is hovering. You've got... I think that's Elijah on the left and Moses on the right. You see the three disciples who had fallen asleep. They're now awake, and you can see how he pictured their response to the scene and feeling and experiencing the very glory of God. These two characters that are at the left down at the bottom were added by Raphael. They're two Christian martyrs. Their names, Pastor... That's an unusual name, isn't it? And the other one was Justice. The original idea was to take this painting and put it in a church that would be dedicated to these two martyrs for the Christian faith. That's all we know about it. But if you just take a moment and see it, you can visualize the glory of God. The bottom segment, totally different from the top. I call it the half of despair and tragedy. And if we take a close look at the bottom, you'll see very at the very top, we've already seen it, it's the disciples as they were being awakened from their sleep. But you'll see that down below on the lower portion, you can't see it all, but the nine other disciples are are, uh, depicted there. They're in a state of confusion. They're leaning in and looking to the right. And in the right-hand corner, you see the young boy who was possessed with uh, seizures. Call it what you want, several different words to apply it. Some would call it epilepsy. We don't know for sure. But he's there, and he is pointing one arm toward the sky, and it looks like he's in the midst of one of those convulsions because his eyes look like they're, they're not focused. His father is behind him, holding him, holding him back. And you see the utter despair written on the faces of those below. Now, remember, this is Raphael's interpretation of what the Scripture says. Is really telling us, but his symbolism is pretty amazing, isn't it? It shows the connection between Jesus and heaven and earth. That Jesus hovers in the light and in the radiance of God's glory in heaven, but below, it's shameful. The light is above; the shadows are below. What kind of lessons can we take from a passage like this? For surely, God's Word as it speaks to us, we begin to see first and foremost that this is not just a painting that depicts something halfway important. It teaches us the very radiance and the glory of God Himself. And if we look closely at it, we will see that there are many lessons that we can take, that we can learn, because these two ideas, these two events, the transfiguration and what was going on below, may seem like two different events altogether, but they're not. They're connected to one another. And what is going on heavenward is casting light upon what is below. But, lessons from the mountaintop. You notice that Peter, James, and John, what were they doing? They were asleep. How could anybody sleep through what they were experiencing? We know that when... Peter did wake up along with his two companions. It was Peter who spoke out. He was not asked a question by Jesus or any of the other uh, heroes of the faith, Elijah or Moses, but he takes his own cue from himself. And what does he do? He comes up with a plan. Jesus, this is amazing. Let's build a tabernacle, a tent for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. And what he was really inferring here is, and let's build one for me as well. I want a place where I can just sit back and take in the glory of God. What is it? It's spiritual laziness is what it is. And the question I would ask is, what lulls us into spiritual laziness? You know, God gives us amazing experiences in life. It may be that he's done a miracle, worked a miracle in your family's life. It doesn't matter whether it's something that you would say was totally supernatural, but I'm talking about the blessing of God upon your life. God gives us those opportunities, but are they, do we experience them just for the sake of keeping them for ourselves? If so, then what we do is we become prejudiced. And perhaps the biggest threat the biggest cause of spiritual laziness is we get so ingrained in what we're doing that we can't see any other needs around us. Prejudice, and by this I'm talking about just the sense in our generation or the generation before us of racial inequality. That's certainly part of it. But I'm talking about being so ignorant of what God is doing around us that to think of anything else is not on our radar at all. Loving a life of ease is another reason why we're lulled into spiritual laziness. You know, it's hard to see what's in the valley when our perspective is only that which is from the mountaintop. But that's where most of us want to live our lives. What can serve to awaken us Out of this laziness. What can make us change our hearts and our minds? Unlike Peter, James, and John, they're up here experiencing life like they've never seen it. They're having a spiritual high. And yet, what's going on below them, they ignore completely. Why? Well, we all want that life of ease. We all want the blessing of God. But certain things may happen that awaken us and shake us. What about sorrow? tragedy in your life, if anything can rock your world, if anything can cause us to change our heart and change our mind, it's sorrow that comes upon us in our lives. And I'm not talking about sorrow that God causes to happen. Don't misunderstand me here. But I'm talking about the simple fact that when life hits us square in the face and tragedy and sorrow is there, it can wake us up. What else? Love itself. God's love in our lives can shake us, can make us wake up to see a group of people, a church family that is seeking to do God's will in their community and even beyond their community to see that love in action, to see God's love, agape love, sacrificial love, the love of John three sixteen. those experiences can lull us out of our spiritual laziness, can make us wake up. And a sense of need itself, understanding and knowing that our actions affect other people. It was about 20 years ago. I went on a mission trip with a group of students in our church in Louisville. There was about 15, 16 of us. And it wasn't a mission trip like I was used to taking, where we stayed in a hotel and motel and did vacation Bible schools with uh, Hispanic children in the valley. Those things are wonderful. It wasn't going overseas to go across the pond to France. So those wonderful things. It was going to go to Costa Rica. And it was not to stay in a hotel, but it was to backpack into the wilderness and climb up on a mountainside and spend a week with an Indian tribe in Costa Rica to help them building a church. When we got there, finally got settled, they invited us to a feast. They prepared a banquet for us. I was shocked. The main entree was dog. Dog. When the kids came and looked at me and realized what was going on, I huddled them up and I said, okay, this can go one of two ways. We can either take a bite and maintain our composure, or we can ruin everything we want to do here even before we get started. Folks, those kids, those young people just made my year. Because they saw the need and they maintained their composure so that what we accomplished in the remaining days we had there, so that it could be accomplished. I was also able and kind of rehearsed a speech where I thanked the the leader of this Indian tribe and thanked him so much for what they had done for us. But that we had brought our own food, which we had, and that they needed that food much more than we did. So it worked out. God's will was done. Some lives were changed because a need was recognized. And when you put that need above your own desires, God can truly work. Well, those are some lessons from the mountaintop. But let's wrap it up here with lessons from the valley. Lessons from down below. When you look at this painting and you see what's going on down below, not on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, what are the lessons we all learn in life in the valley? Because we live there day in and day out. Consider the following. The priority of prayer. Now, as you read the other synoptic gospels about this passage and their telling of it, you'll find something admirable about the other disciples is that when Jesus came down and met them that day, before he had to deal with the, the family that had the, uh, the tragedy of the sick child, they wanted, the disciples wanted to know what they did wrong. For Jesus, just in a few chapters before this, had set them free and said, you will have the power of the Spirit with you. You will be able to heal people, cast out demons. You will be able to do amazing works. And they did until it came to this one. And for some reason, they couldn't crack it. They could not accomplish this healing. And so they asked Jesus, They said, Lord, what did we do wrong? What did he say? Lack of prayer. These things do not happen apart from fervent prayer. What about you? There's also the promise of his presence. You know, Jesus said, Lo, I will be with you even to the ends of the earth. He's going to say that when he ascends into heaven. But if he was trying to teach his friends anything during these three years while he was preparing for the cross, it was that he was with them. The presence of God, the presence of Jesus would always be with them. But for some reason, they forgot And so do we, because many times we're so afraid and we're so fearful, we just don't know what step to take. We're not sure where to go, and what does that cause us to do? We lose sight of Jesus. We lose the sense of his presence with us because we are so fearful. But on the other hand, it could be that we are so confident And what we can do because God is at work in our lives that what do we do? We barrel into anything with any thought of taking Jesus along with us. We've got everything under control, don't we? Nothing can stop us. That's what the Scripture says. So sometimes the promise of His presence is ignored because of fear. Sometimes the promise of His presence is ignored because we're too arrogant to know better. And then... The power of faith. Faith that, in this passage, the same telling of it over in one of the other Gospels, it says that Jesus said that with faith you can move mountains. That verse has always bothered me. I don't know about you, but I've prayed so hard sometimes for things, and that idea of I can move mountains, it just doesn't work. But then when you begin to realize that, all it takes is reading the Word of God and studying it and digging a little deeper. You know what you will find? You will find that when Jesus said, faith can move mountains, was a familiar phrase in the first century. Now, it was a powerful phrase, but it was one people had heard before because an outstanding teacher of Scripture, a Jewish rabbi, whoever it might be, if they were known for their insights into God's Word, they were called mountain movers. And there are all kinds of words that describe those people, an uprooter of mountains, someone who can tear things up and uproot that which needs to be moved to remove difficulties. So when Jesus said, with faith you can move mountains, he was telling them that if you have that kind of faith in me because I'm with you, because in prayer you can communicate commune with me, that there will be difficulties, yes, but those difficulties can be moved. And remember, valleys outnumber mountaintops. Valleys outnumber mountaintops. You know, some of us look at the Christian life and we will say it, it's hard, it's tough following Jesus. And you may go back in your own experience. Some of you that have been Christians for many, many years, a generation or two, and you'll talk about the difficulty and how you have to learn new habits and how Scripture uh, is hard to understand. But then, then it gets easier. It's almost like riding a bike, some people think. Once you get on it, you can stay in your lane, things will go along fine. But then there are others of us who don't see it that way. What do we see? Well, did Jesus' path get any easier when he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration? You remember it says that Moses and Elijah were talking to him? And that's when Peter woke up and started giving attention and listening. And what were Moses and Elijah and Jesus talking about? They were talking about his journey to Jerusalem Where he would be exalted on a cross. Did things get any easier for Jesus? No. But God, if anything, more difficult. Because some people think that following Jesus means they're guaranteed riches and success and fame. But that's not what the scripture teaches. Jesus came down from that Mount of Transfiguration to walk in the valley. That was below. And whether you see it through the eyes of a famous painter. Is, regard, is regardless. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Jesus came down from that experience. And he came down. To walk in the valley. And he stayed in that valley. Until he was lifted up. On a cross. You know when we think of our own path of life. We come just as we are.
1: Just as I am without one plea but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee O Lamb of God I come I come I come broken to be mended. I come wounded to be healed. I come desperate to be rescued. I come empty to be filled. I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb. And I'm welcomed with open arms Praise God, just as I am Just as I am And waiting not To rid my soul of One dark blood to Thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. I come broken to be mended, I come wounded to be healed, I come desperate to be rescued, I come empty to be filled, I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb. And I'm welcomed with open arms Praise God just as I am
0: Father, we thank you for this day We thank you for the opportunity to learn from you to take Scripture and meditate upon it and to question and to visit with others who are like-minded, to reach out to those who need you. And so, Father, it's our prayer that what we've done in this hour, we have lifted our voices to you, we have called upon your name in prayer, we have taken Scripture and shared it with one another. It's my prayer, Lord, That we see beyond the mountaintop and be willing, as you did, to walk in the valley, knowing that you're with us. It's all these things and more that we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.